This is one of the fortunate times when the actual day of Epiphany falls on the Sunday worship experience. Twelve days of Christmas and then Epiphany begins and today is such a day. It is the day we celebrate the light coming into the world for all the nations, not just for the inclusive club of the righteous. It is for all the nations. Usually we hear read the Matthew story of the three wise men, the magi making their way to the manger, but this morning instead I'm reading from the prophet known as Isaiah. It's actually, well, it's several generations of Isaiah written into the one book, and this is the third generation of Isaiah after the exile from Jerusalem and their way back into Jerusalem from Babylonia. It is a a word of great hope and a word of great joy, but it is a word that is spoken in the midst of also great loss and darkness. In fact, it is this particular passage that Matthew used to weave his story of the wise men that he shared with us in the gospel. Hear now the word as it comes to us in Isaiah 61 through 5. Arise and shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will appear over you. Nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Lift up your eyes and look around. They all together gather. They come to you. Your sons shall come from far away, and your daughters shall be carried on their nurses' arms. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and rejoice, because the abundance of the sea shall be brought to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. This is the word of the Lord. You have to say this much, at least, that the Bible is as full of darkness as it is light, if not more so. We have to at least own up to that. Often when the Bible says darkness, it means a metaphysical kind of darkness, Darkness as metaphor for evil and fear. A darkness that swallows up all all the light like a black hole. A darkness that pushes the storm in and clouds over any essence of brilliance. It's It's despair. It's depression. It's divorce. It's destruction. It's desertion. I had a call yesterday from a friend whom I've not spoken with in 14 years. I actually married he and his wife about 25 years ago. He was and has always been a Roman Catholic, staunch believer, always going to church, and she, a searcher, she was a member of my church in Atlanta at Covenant, but they'd asked me to marry them, and and I did. Gracious, uh, gratefully that I would be involved in that. And uh, I knew in their faith that they would struggle over 
each one's doc, doctrine and dogma, but I knew deep down existentially that they were both in, in the same place, I mean, in a different place. He was completely clear and fine with his place in the Catholic Church and the doctrine and the dogma that came with it, and she was always struggling with the issue of faith. Well, his call was that uh, he wanted to know if there was a book I could send or a sermon I had written that I could send to him that he could give to her to convince her that God actually existed. Uh, She was struggling with the issue of God, and she was reading books about atheism, and he was worried to death about it. And so I, having had enough pastoral care, knew that it really wasn't about that, and I said, so how's your marriage? Not good. So maybe there's something going on there that you might want to look at before you try to convince her to believe, because the more you try to convince her to believe, the less inclined she's going to be. Why don't I talk to her? No way. She doesn't even know I called you. As I began the conversation with him more, I discovered that her, her father had been struggling with the loss of memory and dementia. So she's facing her marriage in a sort of darkness and her father in a sort of darkness. And her faith now was in darkness too. And I said to him, you know, she has every right to question the existence of God in the midst of that, because that's what you do in darkness. Well, I don't want her to completely become an atheist. Just let her find her way. Now, whether we have had an experience of that or not, the Bible owns up to it not only personally and individually, but collectively and nationally. When the prophet Isaiah spoke these words this morning, these hopeful words, arise, shine, for your light has come, he immediately follows it with, for darkness shall cover the earth and deep darkness the peoples. It's not past tense. It's not deep darkness covered the earth. It is present tense, covers the earth. And indeed, It had and still did when he said these words, just as it still does now. Israel, and specifically Jerusalem, had lost everything that they had built their lives on and their faith. Jerusalem had been invaded by the Babylonian armies. They had ravaged, raped, and killed the people. They had burned the temple to the ground, the very presence of where God was thought to dwell. And those that survived they captured as slaves and took them back to Babylon to serve there. When the prophet wrote these words, it is two generations past that. When they had been released by the Babylon, from the Babylonian armies, really by the Assyrian king, and they were finding their way back to Jerusalem. And Isaiah is saying, Arise now, for the light has come again. While darkness may still cover the land, the new day of God's redemptive purpose is at hand. God has risen the light in the sky. Follow it. And of course, we immediately think, ah, oh, it's the wise men's story too. 
This metaphor of darkness and light runs throughout the Bible, as it still does. It is a sort of binary binary understanding, an either-or way of seeing things. Darkness is, of course, bad, and light is good. We're afraid of darkness, even of dark itself. Night is another way of saying it. Bad things come out at night. Scary things happen in the dark. Light, on the other hand, is all good. In the light of day, things look more hopeful. In fact, it was thought by some ancient civilizations that the sun was the source of divinity. So the sun gods became what was worshipped. And it was thought by many that the sun was also the source of healing. The more light you could find, the healthier you would be. And this made sense on some level since if you consider the fact that we've only had electrical light for the last 125 years, these people literally lived in darkness. The only light they had at nighttime was natural light, either the light of the moon and the stars or the light of a fire through a fireplace or a campfire or a candle or a torch. When it was dark, it was really dark. You could, see, you could see the whole Milky Way, no matter where you were in the world back then. Now in America, 10% of our population is able to see the Milky Way because of electricity. Now, certainly electricity is a gift, but it also tends to hide things in the dark. For the people of the Bible, there was little difference between a metaphorical darkness and a physical darkness. Things were either light or dark, night or day, good or bad, holy or sinister. And we're that way too, really, if you think about it. There's this powerful passage in the Last Supper where Judas is sitting with his disciples and he served communion with all the rest. And then after he eats, it says, after he ate the bread, he left them for it was Night, darkness had descended. And it would become even darker at the Garden of Gethsemane for Jesus and darker still even in the daytime when Jesus was crucified on the cross. The text says that at noon, darkness covered the whole face of the land and did not lift until Jesus died at 3 o'clock. Paul does it too, this binary darkness and light thing. In Romans he says, you know what time it is. How it is now the moment for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we became believers. The night is far gone, the day is near. Let us then lay aside the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. And even John in his opening, that famous opening, the light came into the darkness and the darkness could not overcome it as if there is a spiritual battle going on between darkness and light in the world and within ourselves, implying that the light is God and good and the darkness is the devil and bad. This still exists. What color is angel food cake? White. What color is devil's food cake? You think this does not easily morph into the way we judge people by the color of their skin? Light is good, dark is bad. 
Barbara Brown Taylor in her book, Learning to Walk in the Dark, writes, when I look around at the world today, it seems clear that eliminating darkness is pretty high on the human agenda. Not just physical darkness, but also metaphysical darkness, which includes psychological, emotional, relational, and spiritual darkness. What do I mean by darkness? I guess that depends on what color your monster's eyes are. Most people do not know what they mean by darkness, except that they want to stay out of it. Darkness is sticky. It attracts meaning like a magnet, picking up everything in its vicinity that is a least bit of a shadow. If I had my way, she writes, I would eliminate everything from chronic back pain to the fear of the devil from my life and the lives of those I love. If I could just find the right night lights to leave on. There's this thing in us that it's, it's the default thing in us that likes to break down the more complicated truths of life into a sort of binary either or way. As I said, good and evil, church and world, spirit and flesh, sacred or profane, light or dark. It's easier. You're either in or you're out. You're either a liberal or you're a conservative. It's easier. But what if this binary way of seeing the world does not really see the whole truth of the world? What if, in fact, instead of a binary either-or reality, the truth is that we live in a both-and world? That is the deeper truth. And that truth is found in the darkness as much as it is found in the light. The more profound and enlightened truth, I think, the real epiphany for us, the season of epiphany, is found in either the dark or the light, both and, not either or, in the gray areas. And if you've ever painted, you know that if there's any such thing as absolute black and absolute white, there's not, but just to say there are those in the end of the continuum, that what makes the painting are the gray areas that shade and bring perspective into the painting itself. The gray areas, the dark and the light, really matter more than the colors you use. This is the issue this passage is trying to get us to acknowledge. It's in the 6th century BCE. The exiles are returning to Jerusalem A major conflict has erupted in Jerusalem between those who got back to Jerusalem earlier and those who were coming in later. And those who got back to Jerusalem earlier have become the righteous, pure ones, the real Jews. And those who were coming in later, they had been subjected to all this other country national stuff and they were contaminated by it. In fact, they were so contaminated that these people coming in from Babylon said that eunuchs are allowed to the altar, and, and so are aliens. That's the fight. It's black or white for the, for the pure ones, and it's more gray for the exiles coming back. Darkness shall cover the earth, Isaiah says, and thick darkness the people's But the Lord will arise upon you and his glory will appear to you. And then he confesses, nations shall come to your light, not just the righteous and the pure. All the nations, which is exactly what the three kings story is about. 
the Babylonians themselves from the east coming to the manger. While the Bible supports this either or black or white darkness, it also is able to see in a more profound way, in a more nuanced way, more deeply, the gray areas. I haven't done the research on this. It's a gut feeling. But I think almost every major epiphany that happens in the Bible happens at night. Revelation comes in the dark more than in the daytime. There's creation. It began in darkness. And God takes this darkness and forms it. And the first thing God does is break the night from the day and split the darkness from the light, but not split it in a such that it's either or, but both and. And it was one the first day, and it was good. And it was good because both and existed, both day and night. There's Jacob's dream. When the ladder comes down from heaven, it's at night, of course. And then later when he wrestles with whoever that one he wrestles with, the holy other, the mysterium tremendum of God, and gets his hip broken and gets his name renamed, it's at night. And the exodus, when does it come? At night. And when the manna falls, it's at night. And ten commandments come when Moses goes up to the mountain to the dark cloud and the darkness covering the mountain. And in that darkness, he receives those Laws And Jesus' announcement of birth comes in the night. And Jesus is born in the night. And the three kings travel in the night to see Jesus. And Jesus meets with his disciples at the Last Supper. And it is night. And right on the edge of darkness and light, at the dawn, they discover the resurrection. Apparently God is just as much the God of darkness as God is the God of light. In fact, God does his best work in darkness. Here's a testimony. The heavens are telling the glory of God, and the firmament proclaims God's handiwork. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night declares knowledge. Day gives us language, but night gives us wisdom. Or Psalm 139, if I say, Surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light around me become night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light to you. Now, if you can't yet start seeing a little bit in the darkness of this, if you're not able yet to get the either-or importance of this, of what an epiphany is all about, that God uses darkness for healing and for revelation as much as light, at least as much, then... And, and, and if you, we're still stuck in that binary, either-or kind of world, don't worry, we'll get it. If not in life, at death. There is no more existential moment that when we slip into the darkness of death, we also discover in the midst of that darkness the very presence of the one who created us. Hope is born in darkness. New creation spouts, sprouts, spouts too, sprouts in the darkness of the night. I was struggling this morning with how was I going to end this to sort of 
What story do I use? How can I help you understand this? And I swear to you, this is the case. I reached over and grabbed a book sitting on my desk by Rachel Naomi Riemann, who's written a book called uh, uh, Kitchen, what's it called? Kitchen Table Wisdom. She was a medical doctor who, with Crohn's disease, suffered so much that she became a psychologist and then a therapist and began to work with people who were facing deep cancer issues, terminal diseases, and unrelenting pain. She tells the story of this one man named Richard who was referred to her because nothing else could be done by the doctors. He came to her impeccably impeccably dressed, yet his suit was three sizes too big because he was a cancer patient, an oncology patient, and he'd lost all that weight. She said, why don't I come to you? He said, no, I'll come to your office. It took him two hours to get dressed. He would put one shoe on, catch his breath, and then put the other shoe on. He talked about his bitterness, about his disease and feeling of isolation from other people. One day he came in and asked for a prescription for sleeping pills. Are you in some pain? She asked, worried that maybe the pain medication had no longer uh, was effective. No, he said, just anxious. Haven't been able to sleep for two nights. I just lie there. Well, you've been through so much. Why now? I don't know. Had any dreams, she asked. Yes. Tell me about them. Well, there's this dream I had where a ravenous beast is pursuing me in the darkness He could not see it, but knew it was there, and he awakened sweating. That's all he could remember. Let's revisit the dream, she suggested. He closed his eyes, took a few breaths, and then asked, she asked him to imagine himself back in the dream. This is what she wrote. I asked him to imagine himself back in the dream, and this proved surprisingly easy for him. In his imagination, he started to run. In the next 10 or 15 minutes, I did everything I knew to help bring him to another relationship with the beast that was pursuing him, to free him of being its prey. Nothing worked. Become invisible, I suggested. It can see me. Hide behind something. It knows where I am. Talk to it. It won't answer me. As it gained on him, his anxiety grew. As it became clear that he would not be able to evade the beast, I began to ask him questions about it. He still could not see it and continued to run, but gradually his answers helped him to know a great deal more about it. He told me that it was irresistible and merciless. There was no negotiating with it. It was inevitable, but it was not evil. He was very clear about that. In fact, he said it seemed to him to be natural After some time, I said to him, you know, Richard, you have tried everything. Maybe the only thing left for you to do is to allow it to eat you. I had expected him to object, to talk about the things he was attached to, the people he would leave behind, but he immediately moved in this direction and imagined himself overtaken. For a few things, for for a while, things became intense. Richard sat with his eyes closed, weeping, sweating, and shaking so forcefully I could hear his chair rocking. He seemed far too frail for this, and I began to doubt the wisdom of doing this. 
But slowly the shaking stopped and he grew calm. Gradually the room became deeply still and in the stillness I had the impression of sunlight but I knew it was almost five o'clock. Suddenly I remembered the little boy with leukemia who had seemed to know he was going home. I could see him clearly sitting cross-legged on his bed pillow and smiling at me. Richard seemed completely relaxed and at peace. So was I. We sat there together for a while and then he said softly, there is light. There is only light. I am light. We sat for a while longer and then he opened his eyes and said, hey, I don't feel anxious at all. That was great, doctor. The session was over and he left. Later, I called Richard, called him at home and told him I'd been thinking about him. How you doing, I asked. He told me he was doing much worse. He started to describe his new symptoms, yet he seemed calm about these very major changes. I pointed this out to him. Yes, I feel different. That was a helpful session, he said. How are you spending your time? Just thinking about things. What sort of things? He laughed. Crazy ideas. Tell me one. And he told me that the day before he had been lying in bed thinking about getting up and suddenly out of the corner of his eye he had become aware of some sort of barrier or wall just behind him. As he noticed it, he realized that he had always known it was there, but he had never noticed it before. I encouraged him to say more. Well, I know I'm here on this side of it, but at the same time I know I'm on the other side of it too. I don't know what that means, do you? No, I said. Well, I think about it a lot, and it makes me feel good. It gives me that same feeling I had in your office, sort of peaceful and joyful. That's a good feeling to have, I told him. Yes, he said. There was a silence, and very softly he started to laugh and hung up the phone. Two or three days later, I heard that he had died. I like to think he died a little differently than he might have. I like to think that, but I don't know. I can still hear his laugh. 